0: But we start today with sky high gas prices in British Columbia. Drivers, right now, they're just pleading for relief. I got a couple of business representatives standing by getting slammed. By these high gas prices right now look what they did next door in alberta they cut gas taxes there to give people a break now will premier john horgan do the same thing here have a listen to what he says here now to global news reporter richard zussman Uh, We are working on a
1: plan for drivers, and we'll have more to say about that. We want to make sure we're going through our processes within government so we're making the right choices and not making it worse, quite frankly.
0: Okay, so they've got to go through the processes, but it looks like this week, this week we could get some sort of an announcement from this government on gas prices. Now, will Horgan cut gas taxes? I don't doubt it has he ever cut taxes i don't think he will do that maybe maybe we're looking at an icbc rebate this week all right a couple of great guests for you on the line right now kelly haas kelly is the ceo of cold star solutions it's a trucking company and grocery wholesaler kelly thanks for coming on today yeah thanks for having me on Appreciate being here. Also on the line is Kevin Boone. Kevin is the general manager of the BC Cattlemen's Association. He's a third generation cattle rancher, 40 years in the business. Hey, Kevin.
2: Good morning, Mike.
0: Thank you, gentlemen, both of you for being here. Kelly, let me go to you first. High gas prices, man, when you're running a trucking company, this has got to be hammering you. Yeah,
3: it's a a big expense um, for sure. And uh, it's something we have to watch every day um unfortunately uh what it actually means is a, it's a pass through for us uh so the consumer is the one that's actually bearing the, the brunt of that price um it's especially when fuel prices are changing so radically uh, like they are right now um it just means that we've got to up our pricing uh, through this you know, through the use of a fuel surcharge um oh. so it means at the end of the day groceries are going up
0: right Okay, so you've already added a fuel surcharge for your deliveries, is that right? we've had that for for several years most of the inter- oh, okay. industry
3: has that in place and it's it's one way that um that we you know can you can function with the diesel prices going up and down so as prices go down so you when you mention uh, the government may reduce uh, taxes or whatever so if that was to go down i don't know let's say 10 cents a liter something like that then our fuel surcharge would go down accordingly so it, it it's a tool that allows us to go up and down and, wow. and keep our um, our costs, if you will, somewhat steady. But there, it is challenging because you know there's you know there's time delays and stuff like that. But and it's hard because uh, the the end user is the one that's bearing the brunt, and uh, that's not all right.
0: Let's go to Kevin Boone from the BC Cattle Cattlemen's Association. Kevin, what's the impact of these high gas prices in the cattle ranching business in BC?
2: Yeah, well, it, it we're a little different scenario in the fact that we market our cattle about once a year, so we're coming into these expenses and into the most heavily used time for our fuel when we're getting our cattle out to pasture and we're putting our crops in. We're we're going to start into seeding and we're going to start into haying very quickly, which is our highest fuel consumption times. All those expenses we got to pay for up front, and then this fall when when we sell our calves. Um, we hope that there will be enough uh, leeway in there and enough increase to cover those extra costs. We're price takers, not uh, price setters in our industry. So we've got to everybody that, uh, like, like the truckers and everything, ahead of us, they figure in the margins and we get what's left over at the end of the day. So it's looking extremely challenging for our guys just to get through the summer and to be wow. able to have those funds to to be able to operate.
0: So you can't put a, a fuel surcharge on your cows.
2: No, um, we're we go in an open market system, and so we we don't get that opportunity to add wow. on uh, at the start of the chain.
0: Okay, that's really tough. Speaking to Kelly Hawes and Kevin Boone about the sky-high gas prices right now. Uh, Let me play another clip here for you guys from Premier John Horgan here talking about the potential for some kind of relief here for gas prices possibly coming this week. Let's have a listen.
1: I don't want to give uh, people false hope until we've gone through our processes. It's important, I think, that we be consistent. And one of the things I'm I'm proud of about our government is that we've managed the finances of the province fairly effectively. So making uh, off-the-cuff remarks because it's popular is not going to help us in the long term.
0: Okay. Well, he's already, he's already kind of making some off the cuff remarks here, getting people. I mean, people are now expecting some sort of relief on gas prices after these comments. But Kelly Haas, let me ask you about if they cut gas taxes, I guess that would be a good thing for your trucking business. What about a, an ICBC rebate? Because that's the other one that's on the table here right now. ICBC's just raking in profits right now. They're sitting on a, over a billion bucks over there. Would that help an ICBC rebate? Uh, absolutely, any kind of rebate helps in these
3: yeah. in, in these times. But um, I struggle with that one a little bit as far as how it correlates with fuel. Um, so personally, yes, I want a uh, ICBC rebate, but I want it based on uh, the cost of ICBC as far as fuel I'd, I'd rather have a, a reduction based on what's going on in the fuel thing. The biggest thing that upsets me on a daily basis is the carbon tax. Um, you know being charged a carbon tax uh, you know to try and reduce the amount of fuel we burned well, in the industry. Um, we do everything that we can to reduce our fuel consumption because that affects our bottom line. So why are you yeah. penalizing us again on the carbon tax? So, um, you know, that's an area that I think the government could uh, could quickly uh, address. Now I know it's federal, but uh, but still, that's uh, that's an All area right. that bothers me. Well, this um, no,
0: provincial yeah. car, provincial carbon tax is set to go up uh, by one cent a liter. 10 days from now. So April 1st is when that comes up. Kevin Boone, what would you like to see from government here because it sounds like th- this government's under a lot of pressure here to do something to help people out. What would you like to see? Like gas tax cut, ICBC rebate, what would help?
2: Yeah, the ICBC rebate isn't going to help us a heck of a lot um neither because the insurance is, is one thing, fuel it doesn't correlate as Kelly said. Um, I agree with Kelly on the carbon tax, especially on on farming and ranching out here. So much of what we do in in growing plants sequesters a carbon without really that recognition in there and that ability to recoup so the the higher you know when you're filling up your tractor as as Kelly would with their trucks um, and you're you know paying two two or three thousand dollars every time you put that nozzle in the tank. Uh, it's a lot, lot different, and that will eventually end up at the consumer. For us in the cattle industry, it's not. It, this is going to be delayed until we sell our calves and then go another uh, 12 months down the road when they're fattened and finished and ready for, for the table. So we're looking at 18 months for these to work their way through the system. So it's long-term. So up front... Um, relief on this is going to be helpful or otherwise we're also going to end up in situations where guys just can't afford to be on that and what does that do to our food supply chain
0: yeah Uh, gentlemen i want to thank you both for being here to talk about this important issue we'll see what happens this week thanks a lot thanks mike All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the chronically clogged and congested Massey Tunnel now. And if you use that tunnel regularly and you're used to the bottlenecks and the traffic jams there... You have my sympathies. I know a lot of people have wasted years of their lives sitting in traffic around that bottleneck, the worst in the lower mainland. Uh, The B.C. government now has a plan, though. Build another tunnel, $4.15 billion. It will be an eight-lane tunnel, and it will be ready for traffic in the year 2030. So don't worry. Don't worry. Help is on the way. Only eight more years to go, 2030, for the new Massey Tunnel. Now, the government is announcing some preliminary work here, and that happened last week, so there will be some work done earlier than that for the Bridgeport Road bus connection has been announced, Uh, some widening of Highway 99. There will be a, a transit lane on Highway 99, but the big kahuna... Uh, The eight-lane tunnel, yeah, 2030 is the completion date for that. Here is Transportation Minister Rob Fleming the other day.
1: Combined with the new crossing to replace the George Massey Tunnel, we will see significant improvements on traffic flow. We'll be able to manage traffic congestion and we'll be able to make travel by transit, walking and cycling more convenient. And attractive along this
4: section of highway 99
0: okay that's transportation minister rob fleming let's speak to ian payton now the bc liberal mla for delta south i'm pleased to welcome him back hi ian hi good morning mike thanks a lot for coming on so the government now announcing some steps on the road to completion of this project the tunnel itself not ready until 2030 late 2030 i would add by the way according to the timeline but they are announcing some preliminary work here on Highway 99 and some other improvements. Your thoughts on it?
5: Well, what do these guys do, Mike? The NDP did they do an announcement every 40 days? Because literally 40 days ago they did the same thing. They said, "Look, uh, we're 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 getting started. We're doing some stuff. We awarded 57 million dollars in some contracts to do this and that." Just a lot of preliminary fluff that they were doing and then they make the same announcement um two or three days ago over in Richmond going hey guess what everybody we're gonna we're gonna improve cycling we're gonna improve transit and we're gonna uh, put a new interchange at the Steveston uh, interchange big deal we've already heard that
0: okay so you're saying what well, these are just reannouncements? absolutely okay. absolutely yeah So they want, why would they, well, I mean, that's kind of politics 101, isn't it? Standard operating procedure. You announce this stuff to keep it in front of the public and let the, remind the public, look, we're fixing this, we're working on it. Exactly. They, they want Like, you know, we've obviously
5: given them a a rough time going, I don't see this thing ever getting built. And they're just spending a bunch of money and sort of convincing the world that, uh, hey, we're doing something, we're getting started on this. I mean, my goodness, it could be three and a half to four years for them to even complete their environmental assessment. And, uh, you know, I have a, re- a good feeling this thing's never going to fly. I mean, look at First Nations. They they claim to be the friend of First Nations under the UNDREP policy. And already you've got Tawasin First Nations saying, look, we're not in favor of a massive concrete tube in the bottom of the Fraser River. You don't do that now. Maybe you did it in 1959, but you don't do that now.
0: Well, the government says that. The technology on these type of projects has improved dramatically since 1959, so they say they can do it in an environmentally sensitive manner. And one of the things that Fleming announced the other day was the start of an environmental review process that would include some sort of opportunity for the public to have their say, and that's going to start pretty soon. But you you think that... Why do you think it'll never get built? You, you just don't think it'll ever get environmental approval? Is that...
5: I, I don't think it'll ever get uh, the green light from uh, First Nations, and I don't think it'll get the environmental approval. Like, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's laughable for them to say, well, things are different now. How could things be different from plunk- plunking a massive concrete tube in the in the river in 1959 and doing the exact same thing in, in 2030? So because it's I, I a don't bigger tunnel.
0: It's a bigger tunnel. Yeah. Well, it's an eight-lane tunnel. What is it now? It's a four-lane tunnel now, right? Exactly. Right? So now they're going to put an eight-lane tunnel in.
5: Exactly. And Mike, we've gone over this time and time again. With the counter flow system with the George Massey Tunnel now, the commuter traffic has three lanes to go through during rush hour. And with this new tunnel they're building, it's going to be exactly the same. There's going to be three lanes only for commuter traffic and one lane for the buses.
0: Yeah. So three lanes for traffic and one lane for buses each, in each direction
5: which is exactly right. what you get now during rush hour with the counterflow With the system. counterflow,
0: yeah. right. So how why would the bridge have been better?
5: The bridge would have been better because, um, you know, first of all, environmentally, all the pedestals to support the bridge, and don't forget all the testing of the piles, the friction piles were done and ready to go to build the bridge. We had spent $100 million preparing for that bridge to get started, and that bridge would have been opening, by the way, this summer in 2022, yeah. we have been cutting yeah. a ribbon, and uh, you know it it, it. it was far better for the use of farmland. It was basically going right over top of the existing uh, George Massey Tunnel, so it wasn't taking up any new land, which this tunnel is going to.
0: Well, that's that's the part that really sticks in the craw when you think about it. That if the government had not canceled that bridge. It, this thing would have been close to completion by now, although a lot oftentimes these things go over they go over schedule.
5: Oh,
3: absolutely. I, I mean the
0: end sorry, go ahead, Mike. Well, I bet you know it was scheduled open this year, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And now they're talking uh,
5: even if they were to get their environmental assessment. Uh, they're yeah. talking twenty thirty, which is another eight years from now. <laughs> I was I chatted yesterday with Jeff Freer. I don't know if that name rings a bell, but Jeff Freer was a good friend. He was the project manager for the bridge project, and he's an extremely oh. brilliant engineer. And he said, "Ian, I don't ever see this tunnel getting built." I mm. mean, that that's that's a quote from him. So, you know. The other thing, Mike, that we cannot get over is that with the bridge, we had the option for light rail or rapid transit to go over that bridge one day I mean, we've got to look to the future. We've got to get people out of vehicles. So light rail or rapid transit to the BC ferries in Tawasson or to South Surrey was a brilliant idea. And this new tunnel that they're going to spend over $4 billion on doesn't have the option for that kind of light rail. And yet they figured out how to do it between Germany and Denmark and between England and France in those tunnels.
0: Yeah, speaking to Ian Payton, B.C. Liberal MLA for Delta South. Now, the new leader of the Liberal Party, Kevin Falcon, was a guest on my show a couple of weeks back. And he said that he doesn't think that this tunnel will get built either for the same reasons that you've outlined, largely because of the environmental controversy around it. And he thinks that once there's another election down the road, if the Liberals were to get back into power... He, w- he would be willing to put the brakes on this thing, go back to plan A, and build the bridge instead. Now, Rob Fleming, the NDP transportation minister, was asked about that last week. And here's his response to Kevin Falcon and his plan to put the brakes on this tunnel and, and build a bridge instead. Here's what Fleming had to say, then I'll get your thoughts.
1: If uh, Kevin Falcon continues to say that he's going to cancel this project... When we've awarded contracts for it to proceed, when we've built infrastructure like the Steveston interchange uh, and the bus lane uh,
5: that we're announcing today, he's going to have to rip it out. He's going to have to rip up contracts and he's going to expose the taxpayer to more delays, more liabilities and no solution in the future.
0: OK, as Transportation Minister Rob Fleming calling out Liberal leader Kevin Falk they there saying, don't even think about trying to cancel this new tunnel. Because if you do, it's going to just be delays and costs. Your thoughts? Mike,
5: I almost fell off my chair when I heard that. That could be the most hypocr- hypocritical comment by a politician in the history of the world. Like, we Whoa. had spent $100 million, but the bridge was underway, and the NDP came along in 2017 and said, out of spite, it's like a Seinfeld episode with Jerry returning a sports jacket, out of spite... <laughs> We're, we're, we're cancelling this bridge project. And they threw away $100 million of taxpayers' money and a lot of good work had been done to get this bridge started. And he's saying that if Falcon does the same thing, it would be irresponsible to, to take apart the plans by the NDP's tunnel. That's the funniest thing I've ever
0: heard. Yeah, okay, so he's, okay, that is an interesting sort of analysis on it. So you're saying that he's now accusing you guys of doing what they've already done. Absolutely. Yeah. I I know. It's funny. How much did, okay, so it was $100 million had already been spent on the bridge before the NDP canceled it, correct? So that's just money down the drain. Absolutely. It was... um, Uh, preload,
5: highway widening, moving massive hydro towers to reroute the hydro lines over the river, Um, uh, driving the piles, testing all the big, huge piles that were going to support the bridge. The environmental assessment was completed and done to move forward with the bridge.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. All right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about the Massey tunnel with my guest, Ian Payton, tons of phone calls here, Mike and Langley. Hi, Mike, go ahead. Hey, uh, I, even if the bridge
3: and the tunnel were the exact same lane, a tunnel flows, it's way worse than a bridge because it's natural reaction just to slow down when you're going like into a confined space. So even if they, even if you had a bridge and the tunnel that were the exact same lane, the bridge is going to flow way better just naturally. Like I don't know why they'd even attempt a tunnel.
0: Okay, Ian Payton, no do you, thanks for the call. Do you agree with that, Ian?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, the bridge is, it's up, it's exposed to complete total daylight. Um, You know, if, you know, if it was a 10 lane bridge, like we had proposed, if there is an accident, there's always room to move the accident over to one side and still keep a couple of lanes open to keep traffic moving.
0: Well, can't you do that in the bridge? You mean in the tunnel? In the tunnel, I mean, yeah. Like, couldn't you do that in the tunnel? Well, it's a little trickier. I mean,
5: I suppose, like, even now, like, the nightmare with the tunnel now, even with our Delta Fire Department and paramedics, is trying to get fire trucks in there when there's a yeah. massive lineup of vehicles two lanes
1: wide to get in there.
0: Terry on the line in Surrey. Hi, Terry. Go ahead. Hi, I'm doing
1: well. Good. Um, my, my my background is from Norway, and uh, Norway, in all its fjords and so forth in crossing waterways. They go for tunnels as opposed to bridges because of another type of traffic and that is marine traffic. Now with what's going in the future in New Westminster with uh, larger super ports, larger container ports planned and so forth, the the draft of the vessels that are going to, that are not right now going up but are going to go up there, they require a very deep and on a high tide a very high bridge and looking at this from the point of view of a motorist I think a bridge is better but the two kinds of traffic marine and the autos the cars uh, they need something to accommodate ships okay isn't it okay and so, Ian, and so the, Ian, tun- the the tunnel is a better thing for ships the bridge the ton- is a better thing for cars
0: and Ian Payton, thanks for the call.
5: Yeah, well, Mike, the, the new bridge was going to be the identical height as the Alex Fraser Bridge, and so there's two major bridges that ships need to get under to get up, because we do have some major, major uh, shipping and exporting off of the Fraser River. We've even got a big new grain tunnel up uh, by the Surrey the Surrey wharves. So, um, yeah, I mean, the new bridge was going to be no different than the Alex Fraser, so it would certainly accommodate the height of, of ships as they, they are today.
0: Steve in Delta. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, how you doing? I was having a good morning until I started listening to this
1: conversation. You
0: okay,
1: know, tell Ian, me Ian's why. Done, well, you know, Ian's, well, Ian's done his job here, and he's and he should keep their their feet to the fire on this. The caveat, the caveat for this is going to be the environmental study, and he's spot on about this because yeah. the NDP are going to say, "Hey, you know, we changed all this. We know, but you know, now we have this environmental study. It's independent." And uh, and and they've 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 nixed it. Now we've lost five more years. Now, as far as freighters going through, well, the reality is, you know, we're going to have to dredge that river if we're going to put bigger freighters through. It's easy to build a, a big enough, a tall enough bridge to go through. But as those freighters get big, bigger and, and require more depth, the only
0: way you can okay. really do that is to dredge. So Steve, keep going
1: in. I just the, went through the tunnel,
0: and it's Thank you, now. Steve. Thanks thank you. The- Thanks for the call. Like on the environmental impact on this, Ian, you know, your point is that if they sink another tunnel, they sink another concrete tube to the bottom of that river, that is an impact on what migrating salmon. Can they do it at a time when there's, there's the salmon are not migrating through that stretch of the river?
5: Well, Mike, I mean there's marine life 365 days of the year. There there's sturgeon, there's ulicans, there's uh there's seals, there's uh, yeah, I mean, there's salmon, there's all sorts of things. I mean, nowadays, Mike, with uh Row and um you know, leases on land along the Fraser River, it's impossible to do just about anything along the side of the Fraser River without a massive um environmental review. So yeah. You know, putting a, a massive concrete tube in the bottom of the Fraser River and all that. Like, they literally have to dig a massive trench in the bottom of the river before they even put the concrete tubes down
0: to settle them into this trench. All right, let's go to Grant on the line in Surrey. Hi, Grant.
1: Yeah, I, might, yeah I, I think the NDP is believing that we're drinking the Kool-Aid on this one. They thought that a tunnel is going to be more effective, efficient, or environmentally friendly is bizarre. And the reason they're saying that is because on the Liberals' watch, they recommended a bridge. And they don't have the the fortitude to say, hey, listen, we agree with you, let's proceed. They're childlike, and it's going to backfire on them because every time there's a client or there is meaning a voting person sitting in that tunnel, pissed off, they're going to say... What the heck have we done
0: here? Grant, thank you for the call. Ian, we got 30 seconds here. I mean, the government is saying that they're doing what the local municipalities want. Rob Fleming did that news conference the other day with the mayors of Richmond and Delta standing beside him. But your thoughts. You get 30 seconds. Well, again, I, I, honestly, I don't know what happened.
5: The, the NDP, for some reason, rather than going out to major, major engineering firms, at which we did to get analysis, engineering studies, like hundreds, if not thousands of pages, they went to the mayors of uh, Metro Vancouver and said, you guys decide whether it should be a bridge or a tunnel. Are you kidding me? You guys decide? Um, uh, uh, the mayors. But, you know, Mike, uh, the short ending here is uh, the new tunnel that they're talking about would be over $4 billion. The price tag we had for the bridge was $2.7 billion.
0: Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the situation on the ground in Ukraine right now and in the besieged city of Maripol, where the bombs uh, continue to drop every 10 minutes, according to officials there. What a grim and desperate situation it is right now in this city. And the Russians issued a deadline for authorities to surrender that city this morning. Uh, but ukrainian negotiators rejecting that ultimatum the shelling uh, continues in that city ukraine president volodymyr zelensky saying he is now open to negotiations directly with russian president vladimir putin but if they fail he warns it could result in a wider war i've got professor jeffrey Warro standing by here to discuss first have a listen to this report from the BBC, especially on the situation in the city of Maripol. Have a listen.
4: Ukraine has rejected a deadline by Russia for residents to surrender and leave or face military tribunals. But with 90% of residential buildings damaged or destroyed, tens of thousands of people are now homeless. Everything is destroyed. You can see it yourself. There is no untouched apartment left. Everything is broken. We don't know how to live on. In basement bomb shelters, and with no power for weeks, families gather and do what they can to stay warm.
2: We have been in
0: a basement for 11 days. This is the 25th day of war. We've been counting every one of them. We hope for the best, to live as humans. The apartment has been broken. Everything is broken. Where can we go from the basement? We're cooking at a fire, For now, we have some food and some firewood. In a week, we will have nothing, no food at all. What should we do? Okay, it's a terrible situation in that city. Let's discuss now with my guest, Professor Jeffrey Warrow. He's a professor of military history at the University of North Texas. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jeff, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. You bet. It's our pleasure to have you here. It's, it's heartbreaking to watch the images out of this city in Ukraine, Maripol. I watched some terrible, terrible images on uh, the news last night of uh, mass graves being dug in the city and people just desperately trying to survive. What, what is your analysis of the situation, particularly in that city right now and the Russian ultimatum there for the authorities to, to surrender as, as the answer? Uh, the Ukrainian, Ukrainians do not seem like people are going to surrender at this point. Your thoughts?
6: Yeah, well, I think that the the Russian anxiety is has to do with the, the lack of progress they're making and the fact that they've been at this now for a month, and uh, they're sort of stuck in the same places they were. They've made some progress in the South, but Mariupol's critical because it's how they kind of link up the Crimean position with the Donbass position. It's also a way they can try to cut off this very large fraction of the Ukrainian military that's fighting against these um, Russian separatist forces plus Russian troops in the Donbass provinces, you know, Luhansk and Donetsk. And so there's this big piece of the Ukrainian army they're trying to cut off, surround, and eliminate uh, before it can get back to Kiev and join in the defense of the capital. But to do that, they've got to take, you know, Mariupol and uh, kind of close the ring there. And it's also just another yet another one of Ukraine's critical ports. I mean, think about Ukraine. All of their exports are these big, bulky things like you know wheat and uh, and sunflower oil and uh, coal and iron ore. And so they need these ports. All their exports go by sea. And so obviously Putin's trying to landlock them. That's why he's striving toward Odessa so he can cut them off from the sea and then basically make them a a weak tributary of you know a much larger Russia that will completely encircle Ukraine. So that's kind of what the stakes are for both sides. And uh you know Maripol for the Ukrainians is is partly saving these forces that are fighting in the Donbass and it's uh partly keeping this this vital port still in their hands. And uh and Putin has, you know, the sort of opposite view.
0: Yeah, how uh, badly did Putin miscalculate here because we remember at the start of this it, it appeared that the Russians thought that this would be I don't wanna say a cakewalk, but they thought they would walk in there and take over the country with relative ease and and a swift and rapid victory onto Kiev and and take over the country and topple the government in short order. What how did Putin miscalculate that? Well, partly because of his isolation, the fact
6: that he surrounds himself with yes men. I mean you saw that National Security Council meeting that he broadcast uh thinking that it would kind of like reinforce his his mission in Ukraine and in fact it just showed the world you know really how uh isolated he was and how he was basically forcing his intelligence chiefs military chiefs national security people to tell him what he wanted to hear and when he didn't hear what he wanted to hear he'd correct them and say no you mean this right and they'd be like oh yeah yeah that's what i mean <laughs> so it was partly that that he wasn't getting the honest unvarnished truth you know it's probably I've, I've heard it alleged and it's probably true that like the gru the soviet you know, the russian military intelligence would have got it right but they weren't consulted in, in a sort of a candid way mm. and so they either you know they either kept you know kept silent or they or they kind of tailored the message to what he wanted to hear yeah. so um you know and then on top of that it was just you know because biden administration was leaking all of the russian plans and intentions ahead of time to kind of um and to kind of foil them and 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 screw up the russian messaging on this on this war putin got more and more paranoid so he stopped like talking to senior military guys about it for fear that there'd be leaks and uh he kept it very so basically the troops that were arrayed around ukraine in the donbass and in and uh, russia and belarus all these you know this this hundred and eighty ninety thousand men man force uh those those officers weren't even alerted that they were invading Ukraine until the morning of the operation um and you know and then as you know there was a lot of conscripts involved who were you know statutorily not supposed to be involved in this kind of a conflict and he used them anyway they were obviously demoralized as was all the other units who had been told that you know it would just be sort of a walk in the park and a sort of a ceremonial operation and then they instead ran into this stiff resistance What's also, you know, striking about all that is that, you know, they they went in and they took, the Russians took Crimea from Ukraine in 2014, and they assumed it would be much the same in 2022 when they moved into these other parts of Ukraine. But, you know, meanwhile, the Ukrainians have had eight years to kind of build up their defense and build up their military, gain, like, uh, real-world experience fighting the Russians, and uh, also just sort of uh, cohere around a spirit of nationalism that was, you know, relatively weak before him. And so... Somehow the Russians missed this, too, that they were fighting an entirely different force than they would fought eight years earlier.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's just been a whole series of miscalculations here by Putin, whether it's the strength of the Ukraine resistance. He, He seems to have underestimated the impact of the Western sanctions that have been applied, his own military's ability to go in here and achieve a swift victory. So where does that leave him now, given that this clearly does not seem to have gone the way he thought what options are left to Putin now other than just, like, shelling these cities as a way to force them to surrender? Your thoughts? I think it's um, it's pretty clear that he's dragging his feet on negotiations. Um,
6: you know, Zelensky wants the negotiations to happen, like, straight away and, and negotiate an end to this thing to spare his people all this suffering. And Putin's deliberately dragging his feet because he wants to have more of these port cities in hand he wants to link up all these enclaves around the fringes of ukraine in one solid russian piece that will basically cut them off from the sea or c- cut them off as, as much as possible from the sea maybe leaving a place like odessa as their only lifeline but and then he could then trade that for other things like you know permanent uh, ukrainian neutrality right. some sort of a friendship treaty uh, detaching, you know, those, those two provinces in the Donbass, taking other territory. Um, and so, the, you know, these are things that, you know, he'll have a better chance of if he has more sort of chips in hand. So that's why he's going on. And unfortunately, it seems like he has no scruples whatsoever about attacking these cities and killing these civilians and, uh, and will just keep doing it in this kind of grim, determined way. And uh, and he's sort of safe in the knowledge that NATO's probably not going to intervene because the risk of escalation is too great. So yeah.
0: Last uh, last question for you, Jeff, on that point with uh, Ukraine continuing to call for this no-fly zone, is NATO right to reject it at that point? At this point?
6: Yeah, because I mean, a no-fly zone, you know, puts uh, NATO pilots into conflict with you know, with Russian anti-aircraft systems and, and and Russian fighter jets. So you're going to have like a shooting war between NATO and Russia, and that could easily, you know, because the, Russia has, has a first-use policy for nukes. They're willing to use them first. Uh, they call it escalation dominance. If they get, feel like they're getting pushed back or disrespected, they'll use a battlefield nuke or even a strategic nuke. Uh, uh, in the hopes that this will then dissuade the adversary. So you, know, you have to be very careful, particularly when you're dealing with someone as, as seemingly uh, isolated, and
0: unbalanced as Putin. What what is a is, one, what is an a, a battlefield nuke or a, str- a strategic nuke? What is that? Well, the you know this
6: you know the the strategic nuke will have like you know hundreds of kilotons of blast that will level a whole city, you know, like an ICBM or a sub-launched you know ballistic missile. Whereas the battlefield nuke would be the tactical nuclear weapon, which would be like a third of a kiloton of yeah. uh, of explosive blast. So it'll take out you know it'll take out a big armored unit or something and the infantry around it and radiate the area, but it won't it won't despoil the whole surrounding landscape.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. It's it's terrible to even contemplate something like this, but this is where we are, where we're at. Jeff, thank you yeah, for coming the on.
6: The fear would be that as you go up the ladder, you know, so he uses one of those, and then how do you respond? And then does he respond with a bigger nuke? You know, so yeah, yeah. that's what they're, you know, and the, part of it's the fear that it might just be the madman theory that he's just play acting, but
0: you got to be careful. Jeff, thank you for coming on today with your analysis. I appreciate it. You bet, Mike. Great to be with you. Uh, uh. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the situation on the ground in Ukraine right now with my guest, Professor David Marples, Professor of Russian and Eastern European History at the University of Alberta. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. David, thank you for coming on once again. Yep,
4: you're always welcome.
0: David, what is your analysis of the situation right now? We saw the Russians uh, issue an ultimatum to the Ukrainians today. Uh, to surrender the city of Mariupol uh, which the Ukrainians refused to do so that deadline is now passed uh, this is this poor city is being shelled constantly according to the reports we're seeing what is what is your analysis of Putin's strategy here what is he trying to achieve well i think
4: i think mariupol is is kind of vital to his strategy because mariupol um, provides a gateway between the separatist republics of the donbass which putin has recognized and crimea which was annexed outright in 2014 so that city was once in the hands of the separatists and it was taken back from them by the ukrainian army uh, in the summer of 2014 and it's remained on the ukrainian side since then so for i think for putin this is a bit of a red flag you know it's something he's got to get and and it's something that actually strategically worthwhile to get as well so he's insistent on getting that but he's not got very far i mean like other fronts in the war the ukrainians don't give up and if they don't give up yeah. and they're in, and they're in the middle of cities then the russian troops uh, are showing well that first of all they seem to be very inefficient anyway but they're showing a marked reluctance to get involved in street fighting uh within the city itself so they resort into bombing them which is causing enormous casualties and great hardship among civilians.
0: Yeah, and it's just heartbreaking to see what's happening in that particular city. What is the way out of this thing, or is there one? Do you foresee any kind of a, a diplomatic off-ramp here to to get out of this?
4: Well, certainly there, there are ways to get uh, women and children out of there uh, if you provide a sort of gateway to them. I mean, you could see, have a ceasefire for 24 hours and get people out. But Russia is insisting that the city surrender before it does that. And that is why why there's this impasse, and nothing is likely to happen unless you can get around that. And I can understand the Ukrainian position. They don't want to give anything up because, you know, it's a precedent. And the cities that they have given up so far, um, like Kherson in the south, uh, even there, they're still heavily contested, and the Ukrainians are protesting daily against Russian occupation. So nothing is going easy for the Russians in this war. And um, I I think that's just a sign of where where it is. It looks like a long, long drawn-out campaign coming to me.
0: Yeah, and we heard uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky the other day indicate that Ukraine would not be joining NATO anytime soon, even though that part of their constitution to join NATO, it appeared to be a concession is that what it looked like to you, that he was putting that chip on the table for a negotiated end?
4: It may be. I mean, that is something that he can't do anything about anyway. If NATO had said, yes, we were going to take you as a member, let's say, immediately, and then start to intervene, um, then it would have accepted that, of course. That would have been the preferred route. But if NATO is not going to accept Ukraine, then he would prefer that they say so outright, you know, there's no possibility for getting into NATO now or in the immediate future, or perhaps never, then it is probably better for them to, to say that outright so that Zelensky can then convince Ukrainians that he's not really giving anything away by making that concession. And it's the, probably the only concession of those that Putin has asked for that, that is really manageable. I mean, not the others are sort of so es- esoteric and so ridiculous but they can't really be considered. I mean, denazifying Ukraine, what on earth does that mean? Yeah. Um, you know, Nazi symbols have been banned in Ukraine since 2015. Not that they were much used anyway. And if you're going to denazify, you might as well start with Russia itself. who have got, you know, far more sort of right-wing, far-right-wing neo-Nazi-type groups than Ukraine has.
0: David, it's always great to have you on with your analysis and your insight. Thank you for being here today. appreciate it.